Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Russell Hargrave, Senior News Reporter. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we've decided it is finally time to bite the bullet and we are sitting down to have a look at the two candidates who are now in the Conservative leadership race. We're going to try and establish what, if any, links they hold with the charity sector. Plus, this week's news bulletin includes a groundbreaking piece of medical research and a panda with a very special birthday. (laughs) But never mind special birthdays, we'll get on to that. Emily, you've been very excited all week about something that you're doing, I think, tomorrow. Come on, share it with the listeners. What are you up to? Absolutely. I am going to see ABBA Voyage uh, tomorrow night. So going to the special IKEA purpose-built stadium in uh, East East London to watch the the Abatars, which is the official name, um, doing an amazing 90-minute set. I am so excited about this. My mum booked these tickets, I think, about a year and a half ago when it was first announced. Mm-hmm. We love ABBA in my family. So it's an entire... Your Bert's going on mass. So it's all <laughs> five of the Bert's plus partners and uh, I think a couple of other friends as well. So that is going to be great. The reviews are meant to be amazing. I am intrigued to see how this kind of concept plays out in a live setting. Um, But all the reviews have just said it's meant to be absolutely phenomenal. So cannot wait. Emily is always very, very cheerful company. But as soon as she's had the chance to talk about ABBA, it's just gone (laughs) up a notch to a point where sort of third sector colleagues have been sort of blinded by the glow of excitement. (laughs) I can only pray that it is as good as you hope it is, given the kind of the big build up. Not everyone is so keen. I must admit, it's not. It's been like Eurovision. It seems to be this kind of secret that everyone else knows about ABBA. And I've never, ever been able to get into it. I've never totally understood it. I saw your face fall yesterday when I kind of outed myself as not an ABBA fan. <laughs> um, so I'm hoping maybe you can come back. You can sell me on it when it's all when it's all done and you've had the full experience. Absolutely. I mean, I think ABBA and Eurovision are very closely intertwined, of mm. course, you know. Um, so if, if, you, if you're not a fan of one, I can see why you wouldn't be a fan of the other. But they're just such good vibes. You never get bad vibes at an ABBA party. That's what I would say. My concern about Eurovision has always been that the music's not that good and that one of the selling points is that music's not that good. It's kind of a bit kitchen, a bit silly. And I always think, well, I could spend two hours or three hours or four hours watching music that was really brilliant. So why am I watching this kind of Czechoslovakian <laughs> uh, sort of pipe song that uh, that sort of has high irony content, but actually you forget the minute it's finished. So I'm sorry, maybe it's unfair. I sort of group ABBA together with that. But you're not, you're not the first friend and colleague to suggest that I'm missing out. I think you just need to expand your tastes beyond the pet shop boys, um, <laughs> personally. But also I think this is a really, you know, it's going to open a really interesting thing for what about gigs in the future? What does it mean um, if we can come up with these amazing, um, you know, uh, holographic yep. performers, then we could, in theory, be bringing any great star back to life. I mean, if you could regenerate any national treasure and then go and watch them do a 90 minute set, who would you go and watch? Uh, if we really were regenerating from the dead, Freddie Mercury, because can you imagine the charisma? I would absolutely go and see Freddie Mercury too. I would want to be like um, in that famous Bruce Springsteen video where the woman gets like dragged up on stage and gets to dance around with Bruce Springsteen, which is a fantasy of my wife's, it should be said. <laughs> I would I would quite like to have that, but Freddie Mercury. With Freddie Mercury. Just go and dance around with him when he's wearing his white vest. Absolutely. And just hope that some of that just sheer magnetism 
you just get to kind of hold that for a couple of days, go around. People on the tube just give up their seat to you automatically. Everyone nods on the street. Absolutely incredible. But now we have to talk about a far less impressive performance that's currently playing out on our TV (laughs) screens. So we should probably get into that. All right, let's talk about the Conservative Party. So, Russ, it's time for another Prime Minister. How are we feeling? Excited? Energised? Yeah, neither of those things, I think it's fair to say. Um, it's a bit, I think it's a bit like watching someone sort of fall down the stairs, like in a, a slow-motion Charlie Chaplin movie, mm-hmm. which normally is just for broad farce, but actually one of these people is actually going to run the country at the end of all this. So we should be paying attention. I think it's time for Third Sector to really take this seriously. Absolutely. Um, Before we come to Truss and Sunak, however, I think it is always worth just winding back that clock for a quick snap recap of the last seven or so years of Conservative leadership in this country. It's very kind to only go back seven years. Some of us are recovering Lib Dems. The the 2010 (laughs) to 2015 period is best not thought about in any way. Um, But yeah, so let's go back to 2015. What, What happened there? So 2015, the coalition ends and that's when David Cameron is elected in the 2015 majority Conservative government. Uh, He lasted about a year before the EU referendum, which, just as a reminder, he called in a (laughs) bid to establish his power. Instead, uh, Brexit kind of ruined his life. Mm -hmm. So uh, then we have Theresa May, who arrives in 2016. She is one of the other prime ministers who was not elected by the public. And she lasted for a couple of years, only to then be ousted by Boris Johnson in July 2019. So 2019 saw a summer Conservative leadership race, much like the one we are all witnessing right now. That was between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt. And Boris Johnson wins in July 2019. Five months later, Boris Johnson calls a snap general election. That's in December 2019. And the Conservatives win. They win big, in fact. And they get their largest seat share since 1987. And of course, we've all heard Boris Johnson talk so much about the colossal mandate Mm. he got from, uh, from the British people. And that's what he's referring to. Um, so what does he do with that win? Well, the first thing, January the 2nd, 2020, the new year, and Johnson tweets out a picture of himself giving the nation that classic double thumbs up with the caption, this is going to be a fantastic year for Britain. Um, and of course, I think we all know what happens next because we all had to live through it. So let's not dwell on exactly what happened between January 2020 and say July 2022. We'll just skate over it. Exactly. And then when we arrive at July 2022, Suddenly Boris Johnson's all gone horribly wrong. He's facing a slew of resignations from the front and back benches. 62 of the UK's 179 government ministers, parliamentary private secretaries, trade envoys and party chairmen have all quit. And just a very quick, rather serious break. Why? It's very easy to treat all this as sort of a bit of political theatre. It's easy to forget how serious things were. What essentially Johnson had been found to have done was that he was trying and not making a very good job of orchestrating a cover-up over an alleged sex pest who he'd given a plum job in government to. Mm. Um, And that was finally enough for his colleagues not to put up with it any longer. In a single 24-hour period, 36 MPs resigned from their roles in government, the largest number of ministerial resignations in a 24-hour period since 1932. Record-breaking. Well done, Boris Johnson. Well beating. Uh, Johnson finally saw the writing on the wall. He resigned on the 7th of July. I mean, that feels so long ago, Emily. And it really isn't. But time has just sort of gone through treacle and sand since then. Um, But that was when the latest Conservative leadership race began. And so here we are. It's about six weeks later and we now have two final candidates slugging it out for the top job, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. 
One of them will be elected by the Conservative Party members in a few weeks' time. So, what could each appointment potentially mean for the charity sector? Well, Russ and I are each going to cover a candidate now. To decide this, we relied on the very scientific method of flipping a coin um, to see who would get who. Uh, and then Andy uh, ruled that we had not flipped the coin correctly, so he flipped the coin. See, the thing is, I sort of knew when I came to the sector that editors would find trouble with, I don't know, syntax, base, <laughs> basic logical arguments in news articles, all the things I was prepared for. It turns out that I also can't toss a coin and just th- throwing it repeatedly in the air and seeing where it lands is not the answer. Um, but Andy stepped in. That's what editors are for, right? They're trying to save us from ourselves and embarrassing ourselves further. Absolutely. And um, before we get into the candidates, I am just going to give our topical disclaimer, which we sometimes have to give on this podcast. We are recording this episode on a Wednesday. The podcast will not come out until Friday. So if some sweeping policy announcements are made in the next 48 hours, we can only apologise. We are trying to be as up to date on this as we can. So, Russ, you're on Sunak. I'm on Truss. Let's do it. Okay, Russ, give me a potted history of Rishi Sunak okay, this and is... the charity sector. <laughs> well, he's a curious politician, Rishi Sunak. He's a lever, but I can't help thinking that most Tory members imagine that he's actually a Remainer. He's a fiscal conservative, and yet he basically nationalised the whole economy for 18 months during COVID. Mm-hmm. And he is personally a multimillionaire, and yet he's largely credited with saving thousands and thousands of ordinary jobs during COVID, and I think rightly gets lots of credit for that. In terms of his relationship with... Charities, the very basic nuts and bolts. He's a patron of three charities or community groups in his Richmond constituency, and they are uh, a local national osteoporosis support group, the Laban Brass Band, and Wensleydale Wheels. I did look it up to see what relationship that had to cheese. It's a community transport group rather than a free cheese giver-outer. Well, there are certain um, places in the UK where you have annual cheese rolling festivals and you roll um, cheese down the hill. So I wasn't sure if it was something to do with that, but community transport group sounds much more plausible. Are those the ones where you see the pictures of people sort of rolling down after them, sort of breaking arms and legs and limbs as (laughs) they go along and they're sort of at the end holding up a, a, a bit of cheese covered in mud? Maybe that's why they need a community transport group, because they've fallen down the hill and uh, can't get home again afterwards. Someone to pull them out of their self-made mess. Anyway, it's particularly relevant, I think, to Nack's relationship to charities, because he does have a little bit of a habit now as well of hiding behind charities whenever he's asked hard questions about his own considerable personal wealth. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something, it's a line that he's kind of trotted out quite mm. a few times, particularly in the first half of this year, isn't it? Well, he's come under scrutiny and the government has had a whole bunch of schemes, first around COVID, now around the cost of living, where they've been giving people a lot of money, money off bills, rebates, furlough, this kind of thing. And one of the ways that Sunak has sort of dodged difficult questions about why someone as wealthy as him, for example, might get cash like this is he says he'll give it away. He'll give it all to charity. And he hasn't just said this in the media. He's brought it into the political sphere. So it was the answer that he gave to the Treasury Select Committee sitting in Parliament um, a few months back. Um of course, that begs a question for your average nosy journalist. Well, which charities are going to get all of these thousands of pounds that Sunak mm. said he's going to give away? And have they got it yet? Um, so we did do a story a little while back where I went to him and his team and they seemed happy to talk to me right up until the moment when I said, and who are these charities and when are they going to get the cash? And then they went very quiet indeed. We do know he's done a little bit of philanthropy for his old school, Winchester College. Um, that's received more than £100,000 in donations from the Sunak family Private schools are charities. We could probably do 14 back-to-back 
podcast a whole series <laughs> on whether or not private schools should be charities. Exactly. Yes. Um, I think we should put that off to a day when we've got slightly more time and certainly a bit more energy than I have right now. And a few more voices to get into the mix, because yeah. I'm not sure it should just be you and me debating that. <laughs> but as Chancellor... Rishi Sunak did have something of a track record for supporting the sector. Famously, he was the person who announced the £750 million emergency support package for frontline charities who were affected by the coronavirus crisis in April 2020. Casting our minds back to the time, Sunak said that £360 million would be distributed as direct government grants to charities that provided essential services and supported vulnerable people. And a further £370 million would be distributed to smaller community charities. At the time, Sunak also pledged that the government would match pound for pound donations made through the BBC's Big Night In event, and there would be a minimum government contribution of £20 million to the National Emergencies Trust COVID-19 appeal. Now, Russ, I don't know if you remember this, but during this announcement, he also said that quote, the famous quote, at this time when many are hurting and tired and confined, we need the gentleness of charity in our lives. It gives us hope, it makes us stronger, and it reminds us we depend on each other. I do remember it well. Yes. So I remember a number of quarters in the sector taking umbrage at the use of the word gentle. It seems very strange because anybody who's ever spent any time around charities, you go to your local community centre that's open to do, you know, after school classes for kids or you go to a, a food bank. The people who run those things are hard as nails. Mm. They're tough. They've seen the world. They're helping their communities. The idea that it, it is all run by kind of gentle angels with halos mm. is something from the 1940s. It's a very, very strange idea. Unusual turn of phrase. And in your opinion, how effective was that £750 million bailout in the end? Well, it was pretty good. And there were some formal evaluations that also came to that conclusion. For small charities particularly, it injected cash into the system that simply wasn't going to come from anywhere else because their doors were closed, fundraising events weren't possible, you weren't able to trade and sell stuff in the way that you were. So it was essential help. We shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't be confused about that. But we also know that it was so delayed getting the money out the door mm. because of arguments inside DCMS and so messy that, uh, as the sector reported last month, charities had to return more than a million pounds because they didn't actually have time to end up spending it all. One of the things actually sector leaders had warned about at the time, this was a flaw in the way the whole system had been designed. So was it a help? Yes. But was it perfectly executed? Very, very far from it. But we're talking about Sunak's record here. Does it really matter? Because it doesn't look like he's going to win, is he, Emily? Yes, well, I mean, I make it my business to never predict anything in today's okay. political landscape. But uh, a Sunak win does not seem to be the way the wind is blowing right now. At the beginning of this week, the website Politico published an article that said, uh, if the opinion polls are right, this is Liz Truss's world and we are all soon going to be living in it. So there's something to a percolate. A slight shiver has just gone down my spine. Mm. So every poll of the 180,000 strong Conservative Party membership currently suggests that Truss is streets ahead of Sunak in this contest and is the likely victor to walk away with the premiership in September. Um, and unlike Sunak, and I wouldn't say that Sunak has the strongest links with the charity sector, no. Liz Truss is even more tenuous. My research threw up very few direct connections between her and the charitable sector. What I can tell you is that she did actually work at a charity when she was newly out of university. She was the uh, deputy director of the right of centre think tank Reform, 
that holds charitable status. Uh, so according to the organisation's website, it is dedicated to making public services better and smarter and changing policy for the better through authoritative research and an active events programme that engages the most senior policymakers. So that's where Truss was for a while. She was elected as an MP in May 2010. Then she had a rapid rise through the ranks. Uh, in 2012, she entered the government as an education minister, and in 2014, she was promoted to environment secretary. A small cocktail fact uh, for when she becomes the prime minister, if anyone wants to roll this out to party. Uh, she campaigned for design improvements to road junctions in her southwest Norfolk constituency, notably the A47. And that led to her being named Road Safety Parliamentarian of the Month by the road safety charity Break in January 2013. I want to go to the same parties you're going to, <laughs> where, this, where this is the sort of chit-chat this that gets you all going. This is the kind of going. cocktail facts that come out. Yeah. But as I said... Tenuous, tenuous, <laughs> tenuous links. I really was kind of scraping around the bottom of a barrel here for Liz Truss. Um, in terms of her Brexit stance, she did initially campaign for Remain during the referendum, but she changed her mind after Britain voted to leave the EU, arguing that Brexit provided an opportunity to shake up the way things work. Then in the Johnson ministry, she became the International Trade Secretary and then the Foreign Secretary in 2021. So I did some shopping around online for any trusteeships or any patronages, but as far as I can make out, Liz Trust does not have a single formal charity connection. Mm. There was certainly nothing that we could identify in the register of MPs' interests. Uh, she did pay a visit to the children's charity Little Miracles as part of her campaign tour, and that produced some rather remarkable sound bites. Um, one of the children she spontaneously sat down with was caught on camera remarking, this is so awkward. <laughs> Uh, according to Camilla Turner, who is chief political correspondent at The Telegraph, another of the kids who were at the event described the press lobby, who were all in attendance, as annoying, to which Truss responded, you said it, the problem with being a politician is that you can't fire the press. Charming. I mean, she really does have a bit of a bee in her bonnet about the media. She was recently rebuked at a hustings event by the talk TV television presenter Tom Newton Dunn for her cheap jibes about people in our line of work. thing is, though, about journalists is they do notice what's really important. So I couldn't have noticed that the best thing that came out of the Little Miracles visit was a suggestion by one of the kids that Larry the Cat could probably become Prime Minister next. <laughs> who Who is not behind that idea? From the mouths of babes, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Having said that, Chief Executive of Little Miracles, Michelle King, did tell the Peterborough Times that she thought Truss had listened as the organisation outlined just how difficult the last few years had been. King said that the charity was currently supporting 24,000 families across 14 sites and she said there needs to be more support for those people. Many are just falling through the cracks. Liz Truss has talked about cutting taxes, but I'm interested to hear what impact that will have on services so things do not get worse for the families that we are helping. And that seems like a very relevant quote, because as we all know, the context in which this leadership election is taking place is uh, quite a difficult one. I mean, that was, I don't know, it's so hard when you're talking about like the cost of living crisis, trying to come up with the words yeah. to describe the environment that we're all living in at the moment. It is challenging. It's, it's getting more and more frightening, I think is a fair word, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's no surprise that the cost of living crisis will undoubtedly be at the top of the agenda for both of these candidates. Um, and at Third Sector, we have spent several podcast episodes recently talking through just how much of a struggle this is going to be for the charity sector. So 
for a bit of fairly recent background. At the beginning of this week, the think tank, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, said the government would need to find an additional £12 billion simply to achieve what it was aiming to do with the £24 billion package that was announced in May. And that's because of the fact that energy prices are soaring. Back in May, energy prices were expected to rise by 95% in the coming year. We're now looking at a rise of 141%. Yeah, they're terrifying numbers. And earlier this week, the Joseph Randry Foundation, along with 70 other charities and community bodies, said that the current pledges from the candidate, which include £1,200 for the most vulnerable households, are no longer going to be sufficient. They called on the government to do more. They said that we need to at least double the current cost of living support package that is out there. And the government needs to make debt deduction rates from universal credit more affordable. The charities have argued that the most efficient way to provide this support is through further payments using the social security system and easing debt deductions from benefits. The charities warned that people subject to debt deductions face particularly high levels of hardship. So the argument is let people keep more of their money and that will immediately relieve some of the financial pain that they are enduring. Now, we've been watching the two candidates at various husting events and televised debates for around six weeks now. Um, Can we put a pin in anything that they are actually promising? And do these things have anything really to do with charity supporting the sector? Well, Truss says that she's going to reverse the recent rise in national insurance, which came into effect in April, and that she will hold an emergency budget. I don't think holding an emergency budget is anything especially groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. I think both leaders will have to do that when they come in, whoever comes in. Truss has also said she will suspend what is known as the Green Levy. That's part of your energy bill that pays for social and green projects. So in July, Friends of the Earth described her track record on climate as undeniably poor, adding that her lack of support for action on climate while in government as well as, they said, her vocal endorsement of climate-wrecking projects such as Heathrow and fracking do not paint a hopeful picture for what her government's climate agenda would look like. So that's a going concern there among some conservation charities. And I think Truss's cost of living stall essentially revolves around this argument that her tax cuts, which also include a scrapping of the corporation tax rise, will help to avert the downturn and prevent a recession. But so far... She has not commented on whether she would increase spending to help households with the energy bills increase, which is coming in October. And in our podcast, which was released on Friday the 5th of August, you interviewed Ed Wallace of Locality. He had a lot more detail about just how hard that is going to hit charities. Do you think that we could see a similar Sunak handout for charities as we did during the COVID-19 pandemic? Like you, my record on political predictions is not something to write home about, Mm -hmm. but... Here goes one. I think it's unlikely. Um, This is the great sort of evil of inflation is that if more money goes into the economy or if you cut taxes, the danger is you're just going to stoke up more spending and more inflation and you're kicking the can down the road and the the problem's getting bigger and bigger anyway. Um, What Sunak has said is that he's going to get a focus on inflation being under control, which means for the time being, when when he becomes prime minister, if he does... No big tax cuts, no big handouts, not to charities or to anyone else, really. Um, And he says that the risk of forcing up prices in the long term is the reason that he doesn't want to come in with anything that big. But of course, Sunak is trying to win the race to become the Conservative Prime Minister. He needs to win over the Conservative Party. So he has promised, once he's got inflation under control, a whacking great basic rate tax cut from 20% to 16%. That would be worth hundreds, maybe even thousands of pounds a year to staff all over the country, including employees at charities. Um, 
On the other hand, not much use to people who are not currently working or people who don't qualify to pay income tax. And as we know, these are some of the groups who are going to be hardest hit by this crisis. Precisely. And the very people who, if you talk to charities at the moment, they're very worried about meeting the needs of those beneficiaries. Sunak has made one bizarre charity-specific pledge, though, um, which was a couple of weeks ago. He said that he was going to audit all charities in order to weed out extremism. He also wanted to redefine extremism, which would bring far, far more organisations into scope for whatever that definition was. Hmm. Um, Again, pioneering research from third sector. We went straight to Team Sunak and said, well, if you're going to do this, can you name a single charity that would come under this sort of dragnet? Um, but he had an onset of shyness. You'd be shocked to learn. And once again, his team either didn't or couldn't name any charities at all. We had a chat with the Charity Commission. They said nobody had ever asked them about carrying out an audit. One assumes they're the people who would be responsible for that kind of thing. So I'm not sure that was the most robust policy in his locker. Mm. Well, we'll watch and wait and see what comes of that. Mm -hmm. uh, to give a brief mention to the opposition when it comes to the cost of living crisis, the Labour Party has called for a ban on energy price rises this autumn in a move that would save the average household more than £2,000 a year on gas and electricity bills. Um, so the party has called on the government to freeze the energy price cap at the current level of £1,971. This would block the regulator Ofgem from allowing a huge anticipated rise to around £3,600 in October. The party says that this would be paid for by an extra tax on oil and gas companies, and this would allegedly reduce inflation by 4%. Labour also said that it would offer support for customers not protected by the price cap and would invest in insulating households over the next decade. Um, I've, as far as I'm aware, the Lib Dems have called for the price cap to be scrapped altogether. And that's where they are at the moment. I'm going to confess that I don't actually know what the Lib Dem policy <laughs> okay. is. I know the Lib Dems came out with a policy before Labour and it definitely was going to reduce bills. Okay. Um, and as a good Lib Dem activist I am, I'd say that was probably spot on. But don't ask me for any of the policy details. I've been busy working and phoning up charities, Emily. I haven't had time to get yeah, into the news. Yeah, So my failure to identify Lib Dem policy aside, uh, that's, a, I think, a very thorough political overview. Where does it leave charities right now? Um, well, it's not great, mm -hmm. the outlook. I think we're all aware of that. Um Shortly before we sat down to record this episode, it was announced that the UK inflation rate has now hit double digits. Uh, we're at 10.1%. This is rapidly outstripping the predictions from most economists. The Bank of England had forecasted that inflation would exceed 10%, but they'd said not yet. So this situation is worsening and it's worsening fast. And not surprisingly, when that happens, it's the organisations that are supposed to look after the most vulnerable in society who notice, and they don't have notice. So a few days ago, Scottish charities said that they need urgent extra government funding just to keep the lights on amid the cost of living crisis. More than 80% of charities north of the border responded to a survey, said that they had been affected by rising costs, and only half of those polled have been able to deliver all the services and programmes they had planned in the previous three months. Of those charities that were reporting higher costs, 63% said they had seen the costs of materials and supplies rise, while more than half faced higher transport costs. And the Office for National Statistics reported on Tuesday this week that regular real wages, excluding bonuses, were falling at a record rate of 3%. But that was based on a different measure of the cost of living to the one used by the government to assess whether its 2% inflation target is being hit. Stay with me. <laughs> Using the government's preferred measure, real earnings are falling by more than 5%, unprecedented in modern times. 
Yes, and gas and electricity bills are going to soar again on the 1st of October. James Smith, who's the research director at the Resolution Foundation, said the government support announced so far will fall hundreds of pounds per household short. Smith said any policy choices announced must prioritise targeted support aimed at the households most in need and they have to be swiftly delivered. Without it, he said, there is a very real possibility of destitution for many this winter. And as we have repeatedly said on this podcast, charities are in no way going to be immune from this crisis. And the way in which the word destitution has recurred more and more in mm. coming years, it's such a sort of a Victorian concept that I think for a lot of us, you know, I'm in my 40s, so maybe I have a slightly longer perspective than most, but you think we'd sort of left those days behind and those figures show how they are rearing up again problems that we thought were sort of unimaginable even a few years ago. So whoever wins the leadership race, they're going to inherit the most dire financial situation this country has seen since at least the 1980s. And with every week that passes, the pressure on them to act will ratchet up. On that less than cheery note, Emily, what about we discuss some good news? I think it's probably time for some good news now. Each week, as ever, we bring you our good news bulletin, which is a positive or a quirky news story that we've spotted in the sector. And and just to kind of take it back, we actually launched this during the peak of the first COVID-19 lockdown. One of the reasons that we installed this segment was because the news every week was so awful for the sector. And so, you know, I think it's important. I'm glad that we've carried on doing this. I do feel like, you know, we need to get that weekly injection of some good news for charities. We were listening back earlier this week in the office to the podcast that you and Rebecca recorded right in the first months of 2020. January 2020. Got to the end of that podcast and the two of you said, oh, there's this uh, coronavirus on the horizon as well. And I'm sure if it has any impact on charities, we'll report on that. Anyway, see you next week. Yes. A throwaway line. Who knew? Who knew? Um, But good news. Always important, never more so than when the sector is under huge stress. So this week, I'm kicking off with the story of a medical breakthrough that could make a massive change in the world of transplants. The charity Kidney Research UK has funded research into kidney transplants, which has been carried out by the University of Cambridge. Now, you may not know this, Russ, but one of the biggest restricting factors around kidney donation is the fact that a donor has to be blood group compatible with the person that they are giving their kidney to. This is because you have antigens and you have markers on your cells that can be either A or B, and your body will naturally produce antibodies against the ones that you don't have. Now, this is a very niche irritation, but, you know, when my sister and I were teenagers and I was annoying her, which was frequently because I was the very uncool sibling, and she found the fact that we were related to each other deeply, deeply embarrassing, I could always unfailingly get a rise out of her by saying, I would give you my kidney if you needed it. (laughs) And she used to get infuriated by this and she would shout I don't want your kidney um anyway it's your, it's your parents I feel sorry for him <laughs> anyway Charlie Burt need no longer fear <laughs> because in an enormous medical breakthrough the Cambridge researchers have now successfully altered the blood type of three donor kidneys so this game-changing discovery saw three kidneys changed to the universal type O blood match. This could significantly improve the chances of patients who are waiting for a transplant finding a match by increasing that supply of organs which are available for transplant. 
And it could have particularly positive implications for people from minoritised backgrounds who will often wait for a year longer for a transplant than white patients due partly to low donation rates that match their blood type. So now researchers have to find out how an altered O-type kidney will react to a patient's normal blood type. But whatever happens next, it's brilliant to see charities working with researchers to achieve this kind of discovery. So mm. a big shout out and a big snaps to Kidney Research UK and to Cambridge. And one of my favourite games in this job is when you get a press release that hails some life-changing thing that a charity is going to do. You can look through the press release. Very often it's not very life-changing. It's actually they've set up a steering group or mm. they've got a new board member or something like that. This is stuff that is genuinely life-transforming if it comes off. And it is, as you say, the cutting edge of where charities and science meet. Um, more power to them. Absolutely brilliant stuff. And Russ, I believe you have something for our conservation corner. Would you like to talk about pandas, Emily? Of course. I mean, famously, you know, I've got a lot of time for pandas. Well, life. good thing too, because you're about to hear all about it. <laughs> the UK's oldest panda, Yang Guang, has had a very big week. He has just turned 19 years old. Now, Yang Guang was born in China, but he has spent the last decade at Edinburgh Zoo, where for his birthday this week, here's what he got. A box of his favourite bamboo, Honey smeared around his enclosure. I'm not entirely sure who got the job of doing the smearing. <laughs> of the honey. Um, but imagine coming back to that. That'd be pretty exciting. And uh, what the local paper called a panda cake. And I like this detail. There were no candles, but there were carrots stuck on top. Nutritionally instead. complete. <laughs> exactly. And presumably, I mean, I'm not sure I'd be that thrilled by a sweet cake with raw carrots on top. But Yang Guang, we can assume, was pretty chuffed about We do this. eat carrot cake, though, don't we? We do, but it doesn't particularly taste of carrots, I can't notice. No. It tastes basically of sugar and icing, <laughs> um, which is probably why I like it. A representative from the zoo said, Yang Guang is taking it easy these days. He usually spends around eight hours per day eating and another eight or nine hours sleeping. How good does that sound? It's as my well, ideal day, to be fair. <laughs> Emily's likeness to Yang Guang um, probably stops there. <laughs> I did a quick Google. Uh, pandas live to about 20 on average. Uh, so I think we can all agree that Yang Guang deserves some nice, quiet, quality time. Absolutely. At the moment. Um, in theory, he could go back to China, his place of birth, um, next year. But the zoo, Edinburgh Zoo, is hoping to negotiate that he can stay on in Scotland if he can bear it. Well, a big happy birthday to Yang Guang. And uh, hopefully he will be still with us in Edinburgh next year. Happy birthday, mate. Happy birthday. That's us for this week. We'll be back with another episode soon. And in the meantime, make sure you subscribe to the Third Sector podcast on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Absolutely. And I will be handing back over to you and Andy next week as I'm going to be on my holidays, enjoying fish and chips on the North Norfolk coast, Absolutely. probably singing along to some ABBA while I'm there. <laughs> and I will, of course, be tuning in to see what you're going to be talking about. I mean, that's half a promise, half a threat, really, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Emily's always got an eye on Absolutely. the podcast, guys. Come on. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Russell Hargrave. Thank you to our producer, Aidan Lyons at Rethink Audio. We'll see you next week.